you have your Bible, join me in Mark 13. Mark chapter 13. Over the last several weeks, we have been looking at sayings in Scripture that are what we call hard sayings of Jesus. Most of these, as we have looked at them, are hard in essence because they make a statement that is contrary to our way of thinking. And so the Lord would say that we are to hate our family, but to love our enemies. And we look at that, we go, wait, wait, wait. And then we talk through how, what that really means, that in comparison to God and the love that we have for him. And so we've looked at statements along those lines that were difficult because of what they meant to us. Today we come to a different type of statement that is hard. Today we come to a statement that Jesus himself made, and in making this statement, it forces a question. And then answering that question has been hard for people in different generations and can even be hard for some today to explain to those who don't accept all of biblical truth. So before we get there, let's get our setting and then we've got to run through a few questions for you this morning. When we come to Mark chapter 13, Jesus is speaking now and he's going to be speaking specifically to his disciples about the end times, about what's going to happen at the end of the world. If you look in the Old Testament at what is pointed to with the Messiah who would come, and then you look at the questions that are often given to Jesus during his earthly ministry, what comes together in those two are questions about the kingdom of God. Jesus, when are you going to set up your kingdom? What is our role going to be in your kingdom? Can I sit on your left hand, on your right hand in the kingdom? And there's all these questions that Jesus deals with about the kingdom of God and when he's going to establish himself as the ruler of the world. And so that's where we come to now in Mark chapter 13. So this question has been asked. Verse 4, tell us when shall these things be and what shall be the sign when all these things shall be fulfilled? Isn't it funny? That is as true then as it is today. Tell us when this is going to happen and tell us what the sign's going to be. We all want a sign of when the Lord is going to come back. And then we see in verse 5, and Jesus answering them began to say, Take heed, lest any man deceive you. For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Have you ever heard of someone coming in your lifetime with that mindset? Think about drinking the Kool-Aid. If you don't know what that phrase actually came from, that's an example right there. Okay, so, for many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. Of wars and rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be... But the end shall not be yet, for nation shall rise against nation, and kingdom against kingdom, and there shall be earthquakes in divers places, and there shall be famines and troubles. These are the beginnings of sorrow. Take heed to yourselves. So, today you hear Christians going, all right, well, how does COVID fit into this? Is it one of the plagues that has to come in the last days? Well, what about earthquakes in diverse places? I mean, you know, we know that there are going to be earthquakes in California. That makes sense. But what happens when earthquakes occur in other places? And then tsunamis start rolling in as a result of it. And I remember when I was in the D.C. area, when an earthquake hit up there. And I mean, it was big news. It, I never felt it. That's how big of an earthquake it was, okay? So it, it was one of those type things. But we begin to look at events unfolding around us. And we have this mindset that these are the sign of the end of times. 
continuing on with all of the things. Skip down, if you will, verse 14. But when ye shall see the abomination of desolation, spoken of by Daniel the prophet, standing where it ought not, let him that readeth understand, then let them that be in Judah flee to the mountains. Now, we're not going to go into all of this this morning, so please just help me as we, we breeze over a little bit here. There's a little bit of the whole process of end times that's being unfolded in this passage. So there's, these things have to occur before the Lord comes back. And then there's a discussion about the abomination of desolation. That's going to be between two different returns of the Lord. We'll come back to that, so just stay with me. Verse 20, And except the Lord had shortened those days, no flesh should be saved, but for the elect's sake whom he hath chosen, he hath shortened the days. So there's a process of what's going to be taking place during God's judgment on this earth that's going to destroy a lot of the earth. But in those days after the tribulation, this is verse 24, the sun shall be darkened and the moon shall not give her light and the stars of heaven shall fall and the powers that are in heaven shall be shaken. Now, skip down, if you will, to verse 30. Verily I say unto you that this generation shall not pass till all things be done. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my words shall not pass away. So the Lord's making a statement. All of these things from the beginning of the chapter until now are going to happen. All right, that's the promise. Now, I'm not asking you this morning to have the timeline in your mind of all of this yet. I'm not asking you to understand all of these things. What I'm asking you to do is to start with the understanding. The Lord is going to come back. There is going to be a time in which he returns. There is going to be events that unfold. And a word that's given even in this passage is tribulation. There's going to be some judgment on this world that will occur, that is clearly taught in Scripture. Some have said for every one reference in Scripture to the Lord's first coming, there are eight references to his second coming. He is going to come back, and the world will pass away. But my word that this is going to happen is not going to pass away. All right? So, let's continue now, verse 32. But of that day and that hour knoweth no man. Know not the angels which are in heaven. So anytime someone said, here's the day the Lord's coming back. How many of you remember Y2K, the Lord was coming back in Y2K? Now, some of you are old enough, you're going to have to be honest here. How many of you remember back in the late 80s when the NASA scientist came out and he had the exact day that the Lord was going to come back? How many of you remember that? Yeah, you're showing your age. And then he realized he did the math wrong, so he changed it to the next year. And then he stopped doing the math. Okay, so no one knows. No man, nobody, no angel, no one knows. End of the verse. Neither the Son, but the Father. Then take heed, watch and pray, for you know not when the time is. Now that's saying, the rest of it may be beyond us to comprehend, but that last part of verse 32 creates a, a saying from Jesus that we have to deal with. So let me ask you a couple questions, and you can respond this morning. All right, first question, does God know everything? Yes or no? Does God know everything? Yes. Okay. We have a term, you learn it when you're a kid in children's church, if you grow up in church, and the word that we use, big word for God knowing everything is 
omniscience. So that God is omni, all-niscient knowing. So God is all-knowing. All right? We recognize, we admit, we affirm that. That is a true tenet of the Christian faith. It is an attribute of God that is undeniable. God knows everything. He is omniscient. All right, second question. Is Jesus God? Yes or no? Yes. Okay, so Jesus declared himself over and over to be God. We believe without a doubt that he was God. We believe that he was man and he was God. And one phrase people use, and I don't like to use it because I don't want to be disrespectful, but, but the phrase is God in a bod, okay? So he, he, was, he was God in a body. He was God and he was man. There's a theological term here. It's 100% man, 100% God. So I ask you this question. If Jesus was God, was he 100% God? Now, I've already answered the question for you, so there's no trick here, all right? So, so Jesus was God, and was he 100% God? Okay? Does God know everything? He's omniscient, Jesus is God, and Jesus is 100% God. So, therefore, logical progression here, does Jesus know everything? Now everybody's getting hesitant to answer, okay, so everybody's going, okay, we come back to the passage. So we would all look at this and we'd say, okay, does Jesus, who is 100% God, and God knows everything, so therefore, if A equals B and B equals C, then A equals C. So therefore, if God knows everything and Jesus is God, Jesus knows everything. Completely logical conclusion to come to, and We'll come back to that, so don't brand me a heretic yet, okay? All right, so we know that to be true, but then we come back to verse 32. And in verse 32, he says, neither the Son. No man knows when the Lord's coming back, which, by the way, is me. No one knows when I'm coming back, not even me. So how does Jesus, who is God who knows everything not know. There are many who take this statement and they say that this statement proves that Jesus was not God because he didn't know something. And if he's God, then he knows everything. Jesus was 100% man and 100% God. Let me give you some illustrations of this. Because he was the son of man, he could become hungry. Right? He, he hungered. But because he was God, he could feed 5,000. Because he was the son of man, he could get thirsty. But because he was the son of God, he could turn water into wine and give of a water that you would never thirst again. Because of the son of man, he would grow weary and tired. But, because he's the son of God, he could raise the dead. As the son of man, he counted his birthdays. But as the son of God, he was the alpha and omega, the beginning and the end. As a man, he slept in a boat on a pillow. As God, he told the wind and the waves to cease. As a man, he wanted a fig off of a tree. And yet he cursed the tree and it died. As a man, he died. As God, he rose again, ascended on high, and sits on the right hand of the Father. 
So when we see he is both God and man, and both of these attributes are true in him, Jesus foreknew things, and we see that in Scripture. So we say, does Jesus know everything? Well, he did foreknow things. Jesus knew, as we looked at a couple weeks ago, that Lazarus was dead ahead of time and that he would raise him from the dead. He knew that Nathaniel was under a fig tree the day before. He knew that the woman at the well who came to him and began to ask questions of him was no longer married to one of the many husbands she had had. So he knew things outside of his ability as a man to know. But we also know about him that as a child, he increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So therefore, he learned how to walk. He learned how to eat. He learned how to spell. He learned general human knowledge and he increased in that knowledge and he increased in his stature. So in God, we have his humanity and his deity. Now, let's go one step beyond this and then we're going to kind of come back. When you look at Moses in the Old Testament and Moses goes up on the mount to be with God, he begs God to let him see his glory. And the Lord says, God says to Moses, I will hide you in the cleft of the rock, and when I pass by, I will let you see the passing of my glory. Because no man can look on God and live. He cannot live. If he looks on God, because of the glory of God, he would die. So if Jesus is 100% God, and he was revealed in the fullness of the glory of God, what would happen to everyone who saw him? They would die. That's the conclusion we can get from Moses. So therefore, we recognize instantly that in Jesus, there is the veiled glory of God. Because if that glory were not veiled, we could not see him and live as those who would have been alive in that day. People could not see him and live. So we recognize that in Jesus, in the deity of who he is, that there is a veiledness to his deity. Is that true of God in other places in Scripture? Okay. When Moses comes to the burning bush, who's speaking to him out of the burning bush? Well, God is. But does he see God? How does God appear to him at that moment? As fire in a burning bush. So we recognize that God does not have to reveal himself in all of who he is at any point to mankind. It is not his obligation and he is able to reveal himself to mankind in less than all of who he is. But Jesus is 100% God. There's a theological term here. It's called kenosis. It, the word literally means the emptying. What happens is Jesus empties himself of the prerogatives of his glory for the sake of man. Let me read to you a couple of ways that other individuals smarter than myself put this. For Christians who affirm Christ deity, Mark 13.32 seems like trouble. But what looks difficult at first glance proves with some thorough reflection to be a glorious confirmation of Jesus' full humanity. 
perhaps put most provocatively, the question goes like this. If Jesus is truly God and God knows everything, how can Jesus not know when his own second coming will be? The mature and carefully formulated answer of church history is this. In addition to being fully divine, Jesus is fully human. His one person has both an infinite divine mind and a finite human mind. He can be said not to know things, as in Mark 13, 32, because he is genuinely human and finite. And human minds are not omniscient. And Jesus can be said to know all things, as in John 21, 17, because he is divine and infinite in his knowledge. Paradoxically, as it is, the scriptures plainly affirm that Jesus both knows all things as God and doesn't know all things as man. For the unique, two-natured, singular person of Christ, this is no contradiction, but a peculiar glory of the God-man. So this is unique to God as a man. Now, hold on, we're going to keep going here. He says, not even the Son knows. The Lord voluntarily restricted the use of his attributes. That's this kenosis principle. He laid aside his divine prerogatives. Not his divine nature or his attributes, but the prerogative to use them. He laid them aside to the will of the Father and did only what the Father told him to do. He showed whatever the Father showed him to do and revealed to him. What the Father told him he knew and revealed. By the way, after his resurrection, he was resumed full knowledge and full deity. In Acts chapter 1, we read, so when they had come together, they were asking him. When they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father hath put into his own power. Listen to what he said. It is not for you to know. He didn't say it's not for me to know. At this point, once he had risen from the dead and the incarnation was done, the restrictions were behind him. And the what it is not for you to know shows our humanity no longer his humanity. His humiliation had ended and he was given back the full prerogatives of his divinity. So what happens here? Jesus Christ, as a man, limits his knowledge and that is his prerogative as God to do. As much as God limits his revelation of himself in the burning of the bush. As 100% God, Jesus is 100% man. He doesn't have to use all of man's attributes. And he doesn't have to use all of God's attributes. To be both 100% God and 100% man. His nature never changes. But for the short period, and in the passage back in Mark 13, verse 32, he says, the son. Now, I've told you this before, but you have to keep this in mind. In the Old Testament, is Jesus referred to as the son of God? No. He's referred to as the Messiah. After his time on earth. Often you will see Jesus referred to differently, though still that name will stick with him. But his attributes return. The Son of God is one of those human terms to help us understand a role. It is not a defining term of who he is. And really, it refers so specifically to his time on earth. 
at that point in his humanity, there were limits to his use of his ability. There were not limits to his ability. Do you see the difference? Could Jesus have known? Well, in his finiteness as a man, he yields to the Father, and the Father does not reveal that to him. So you say, at this moment, in Mark 13, 32, I know, this is a little heavy for a Sunday morning. In Mark 13, 32, do I believe that Jesus really didn't know? Yes. I really believe Jesus really didn't know. And yet, after his resurrection and glorification, I believe he did know. So, if you ask me, does Jesus know today when he will come back? Yes, he knows now. Because he's not limited by his humanity any longer in his prerogatives to use all of who he is. Now he is all of who he is. Because he's no longer 100% man, he is now just 100% God. So you say, is it possible that he could really not know? Yes. He could choose not to know. As much as I believe that God could make every single person who ever walked on the face of the earth do only what he wanted them to do. But instead, he gave Adam and Eve a choice. He gave them free will. And he has allowed that free will to continue to our day. He is sovereign, but yet man has free will. He is God. He is man. He can know all things, but he chooses at this point to not know. It is a limiting of his prerogative to know, not his ability to know. So it doesn't change the fact that he's 100% God. He emptied himself to become man. So why is that so important? Well, it's important for you and I because people will take that passage and say, well, see, he, he's not God because he didn't know something. Well, that's not true. It, you're making an assumption about the way he exercised his time on earth that does not have to be true. You're taking an illogical conclusion to a point. I look at it and I say clearly, this is what I know in scripture, that he did not know this, but yet he knows all things. You say, well, how can that be true? I don't have to understand how, I just know that it is. And I know that it is because he limited himself in this area. I do not believe for one second that he is still limiting himself because he's no longer man. So that is now gone. But when we come back to it and we come back to this verse, one of the reasons this verse becomes so important to us is not because of the contradictory nature and hardness of the saying. The reason this is so important to us is because of what it actually says. No one knows when the Lord's going to come back. The point of this passage is not trying to define the kenosis of Jesus Christ and the hypostatic union of his humanity and deity. The point of this passage is that the Lord's return is imminent. That Jesus could come back at any moment. Now, let's do a little bit of digging in our, our study of end times. There's a phrase that has two meanings when you talk about the end of the world. There is the second coming of Jesus. The second coming of Jesus has two meanings, and, and you have to know both meanings to understand it because it can be used denotatively and connotatively. 
denotatively the second coming of Jesus Christ is the second time that he comes to earth and he puts his foot on the earth. At that moment, he is not coming as man. He is coming as 100% God. He is coming in judgment. That second coming is one instantaneous moment and event. But the connotative meaning of the second coming is all of the events surrounding when Jesus comes back. Prior to his coming back, there is an event when Jesus comes, but he comes in the air and he doesn't come and put his foot on earth. That event, as we define it in the Bible, is called the rapture. Now, the word rapture is not mentioned in Scripture. The word means to be caught up. Revelation chapter 4, verse 1, talks about when we are caught up into heaven. The church age is over in which we live, and there is a moment when the Lord comes, the trumpet sounds, those which are dead, those which alive and remain, are caught up together to meet him in the air. So the rapture of the church occurs... And everyone goes up that is saved, born again, trusted in Jesus Christ, goes to heaven. Then there is an unfolding of events. And that's much of what chapter 13 talks about, the tribulation period. There is a point at the midpoint of that tribulation, the abomination of desolation. It's where one will claim himself to be God, the Antichrist, and they will set up there a temple area and try to reinstill worship of the Antichrist as opposed to Christ. That occurs, and then three and a half years later is the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, there are people who have different definitions of this. Some believe in what's called pre-tribulation. Before this seven-year period that the church is raptured out pre-tribulation, we are pre-trib. We believe that we will be gone before the seven years begins to unfold. We believe that for a couple of reasons. One, because it marks the end of the church age. I believe it from a logical standpoint because the world will need a catastrophic event of such magnitude that an individual can come onto the scene, lift himself up as the only one who can bring the world together. I don't see any way in which the world can come together without a catastrophic event, and that would be the rapture of all the people in the, who believe in Christ disappearing suddenly. Now again, this is purely not biblical this is just fictional in my mind that I believe to be true. I believe it will be blamed on aliens. Okay, that's just me. I believe they will blame it on aliens and everyone will come to fight together the alien who came and abducted all of the Christians. I know, but that's what I believe. Okay, so forgive me. But not biblical on that part. The, the rapture occurring, I do believe, is absolutely biblical. Some believe in what's called mid-trib. There are those who believe that midway through this seven-year period, that the church will be raptured out at that point because God doesn't start pouring his judgment out on the world until the midway point, and therefore it is called a pre-wrath rapture. Before all the judgment occurs, then the church will be gone. I understand that. I give that more validity than I do to the next one we will look at. The problem with that is I just don't see it as biblical. Okay, So I, I don't see how that breaks out in Scripture, uh, though I understand what they're trying to, and I believe that the catastrophic event needs to occur. So anyway, you have pre-mid, and then you have post. Post-trib are those who believe that the rapture, second coming, are one event, and that it will occur at the end of God's judgment on the world. Now, I don't believe in that because I don't believe, one, historically, God always took his people out before judgment came. Noah and the ark. 
Also, I don't see that as necessary for those who have trusted in Christ to go through the judgment that is reserved for those who have rejected Christ. So anyway, and again, I don't see the timeline lining up scripturally. So these events occurred. Now, from this event, the rapture of the church, the abomination of desolation, this day for the second coming of God can be calculated to the day. Here's the problem. You add to what? Well, you have to have this day to calculate that day. But that day is absolutely 100% calculatable. You can know the day that the Lord is coming a second time. Once you know this day. When the rapture occurs. The problem is... No one knows this day. So, when you come back to the passage, and you look, even over in the first part, it says, verse 6, For many shall come in my name, saying, I am Christ, and shall deceive many. And when ye shall hear of wars, rumors of wars, be ye not troubled, for such things must needs be, but the end shall not be yet. For nation shall rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, there shall be earthquakes in diverse places, there shall be famines, there shall be troubles in the beginnings of sorrows. So we look at this and we say, okay, what are the events that must occur before the Lord's return? As we look at this, what is the list of events that we have to put together and say, all right, the Lord's going to come, but before he does, we've got to have, and you've got some things mentioned here, earthquakes in diverse places, wars, nations, rumors. All right, so I have put together the complete list for you of things that have to occur before the Lord can return. If you got your pen, you can write these down. All right, go ahead and show me the next slide. There it is. That's the list. That's it. Absolutely nothing has to occur before the Lord can return. If you look at this passage in context, if you look at the whole New Testament in context, every believer believes that the Lord could come at any moment. Have there been earthquakes in unique places in the last 2,000 years? Sure there have. Have there been famines? Yes. Have there been wars and rumors of wars and nations against nations? And have all of these things occurred? Yes. Did they occur during John's life? Yes. All of these things have occurred. There's no question here. We use the word imminent. And it's not a word we use every day in our English language. But the word imminent means it could happen now. It could happen at any moment. There is nothing. And so when we look at this passage and the Lord says, look, no one knows. The point of the passage it's not some deep theological study on the deity of Christ, though we need to understand that as believers. The point of the passage is it could happen at any moment. So act like this. Act like the Lord could come at any moment. When we get a hold of this, there are four things that will be absolutely true. We'll go through them quickly. First of all, there will be spiritual alertness. We will have an alertness about what is going on spiritually in our own lives and in the world. We will be focused and know that if the Lord can come back at any moment, at any time, spiritual matters 
matter. We live in a day and age in which spiritual matters don't matter. We live in a day in which spiritual alertness is not something that we are keyed in on. We go through completely unprepared instead of living prepared. Look, we do this in so many areas of life. We are all guilty of this. When you know the test is coming, you start to act differently for that test. You start to prepare differently for that test. I called Mr. Bob. I started reading a little bit on the internet, and I thought, let me just call Mr. Bob. Mr. Bob spent time in two different branches of the military. I said, hey, Mr. Bob, is it true that there is a physical fitness test that must be performed regularly for those that are in the military? And there's also a combat readiness test that has to be performed by some. And the idea is that every so often, six months a year, that you have to pass a certain physical requirement to be prepared in case battle in case there's a moment in which you say, hey, look, we've got to go to war. I've got a friend who is a CIA, he was, he's retired now. He was a CIA weapons instructor. So he taught people how to use their firearms in the CIA. And, and he did several classes for us there uh, among our church family. And we would go and, and he would always use this phrase. Shooting is a diminishing skill. And, and he talked about how he had... And he, he would tell us about a video. He said they had this video of police officers who ended up in a shootout. But all of their training, they had been taught to pick up their brass, the, the part of the bullet that comes flying out after you shoot. And so in the midst of this shootout, they would come up over the car, they would shoot, boom! They would go back down and they would reach and pick up their brass. They'd come up, shoot, go back down, pick up their brass. It was muscle memory. They had trained them so well to shoot and clean up your brass that during the middle of a gunfight, they were worried about picking up their brass. So now you go to a shooting range and there's brass everywhere because they don't teach them to pick it up anymore because they don't want them to do it. He said, look, shooting is a diminishing skill. If you want to be ready for the day you have to shoot, you have to practice shooting. And so as a CIA weapons instructor, it was his responsibility to make sure that all type of people there in the CIA could pass their shooting test because you never know when you're going to have to use that skill. For you and I as believers... We do not know when we're going to stand before the Lord. But alertness is I am ready for that moment. Are we spiritually alert? When we grasp the imminence of Christ, there will be mission urgency. We will recognize that my mission as a believer in Jesus Christ is urgent. It should be something that is vital to me. We must know that the world has an end. And that life is painfully short. We don't know when our life will be over. All of us, no matter how hard we try, we tend to live in this expectancy of life. And we have a number of days in which we believe that we will have reasonably good health. And then we believe we have a number of days in which we will be able to continue on and perhaps our health won't be as good. And then we recognize that there may be time towards the end of our life where our health is failing. But we still have this expectation of a length of days in our life. For some, that length may be longer than others based on heredity in your family. But we have a certain assumption. And we live in light of that assumption. And we base our urgency on our physical condition 
Now, anybody in here would say, well, I know that something could happen. I could get in a car accident and I could die today. In fact, you may even have insurance to help protect in that situation. But though I do a good job of making sure that the things of this life are taken care of if something happens to me physically, am I living in such a way to make sure that the things of eternity are prepared by the way I'm living consistently? Mission urgency. It provides us hope and suffering. The world is wrecked by sin resulting in pain and suffering. It is a reality. But I know that the promise that the Lord is going to return is that this suffering will not last forever. For a minute, stop being American. Our suffering is so proportional. Um, I, I joke often and probably still not enough about our first world problems. You, you know, we just have terrible first world problems. Ugh, man, I got to use creamy peanut butter because we're out of chunky. Man, I got to use the, the honey from Publix instead of the honey from Costco. It's so much better. Oh, bless your little heart. You know, I mean, th that's where we live. And we look at it and we go, we think of our suffering. There are people all over the world who will never in their lifetime eat more than one meal in a day. There are children who will go through their life, and if they ever eat meat, it would be maybe on a special event, maybe once. And we look at that and we go, oh, well, that, that's not possible. Oh, it is possible. And it happens every day all over the world. But there's real suffering in the world. When you go to a country, and the average life expectancy in that country is what we call middle age. Stop. Stop thinking how bad we have it. But recognize there is real suffering. And yes, we do have suffering too that we go through. But when I recognize the Lord's coming back, there is a hope. Because there's a hope for their suffering too. And I need to get that hope to them. When we recognize the Lord's return is imminent, there is power to forgive. I can endure injustice for the time being because he'll set it right. Charles Spurgeon said, The hour of his appearing is not revealed in order that we may always stand on tiptoe expecting it to be today. Excuse me, is revealed so that we can. We can go through life and we can know what if it were today. What if I got to meet the Lord today? What if... Everything in life was done, and today was the day. If that's the case, then isn't it easy enough to forgive someone? To recognize that whatever they did to me in this life doesn't really matter because the Lord could come tomorrow, and that's what will last forever. And the injustice that they did to me, it's such a small matter. Ask this question. Do you yearn for his return? Do you long for the fact that the Lord could come back? Even earlier in my life, this seemed to be more characteristic of the church. 
How many of you can remember watching the reel-to-reel projector movies about the Lord's return in your church? And you went home as a kid and you were afraid to fall asleep because you thought, surely. And if you ever woke up and there were people missing in your house, you were scared to death because you were sure the Lord had returned and you got left behind. That was the name of the series after all. I mean, you know, you, you were just afraid of this. I had a friend. I had a friend in high school, she, would, she went to a Christian school, and she'd show up the next day, and she wouldn't do her homework. And they'd say, well, why didn't you do your homework? I thought the Lord was coming back last night. <laughs> it never worked for her, but she tried it multiple times. You know, when the Lord's return is imminent, and we yearn for it, it's real in our lives. We don't find ourselves longing for his return because we have so much invested here. In life, we tend to reach an age where we begin to long for retirement. And we make plans, and we set aside money, and we put money into accounts, and we keep an eye on it, and we watch, and we see if our retirement's going up or down, and how our investments are doing. And and we play out the scenarios of our mind of how things are going to be when that time comes. But we have a set number of days, and we we tend to work towards it. And sometimes you may go, you know what, I'm going to work a couple more years because I don't feel like I'm quite right with my retirement. And and we have a little flexibility there. We don't have that when it comes to meeting the Lord because we don't know when that day is going to come. But what happens is we become so invested in this life that we don't have time to worry about when the Lord comes. We don't really recognize the need to invest in eternity. We talk about it. We know it. But if I can get this promotion, then I can get this money, then my retirement will be. And we have so much invested in this life that we can't focus on the next. Sometimes we struggle with his return because the thoughts of his return are mixed with fear. We haven't lived up to our expectation of what we think we should be before he returns. Jesus took our judgment on the cross. Accept him and live prepared to meet him. It's simple. No man knows. We don't know when he's coming back. John there in Revelation said, even so, Lord, come. 1900 years ago, he was ready for the Lord to return right then. The Lord could come today. The question is, have you accepted him as your savior? And are you living prepared to meet him. Let's pray. Father, as we come to you